But would you go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is where we've been for the last several weeks, um, and we're going to continue our time. If anyone needs a copy of God's Word, Larry is standing in the back right now and can get one to you. Just put your hand in the air. He'd happy, be happy to bring one to you uh, this, this morning. It's good that you have these words in front of you as, as I read them. It's good that you see them. Um, men, this is a way that you can lead your family, lead your children, and demonstrating to them the importance of God's Word um, as you look at it uh, this morning. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a table in the back. Feel free to pick one up. Uh, there's a paper copies in the second tier of that, of that, uh, of that, that table, and feel free to grab one of those and take that with you this morning. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to read the first six verses of this text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Solomon, referring to himself as the preacher under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to uh, the people of Israel, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman of it with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. When we come to this text this morning, we see Solomon with some very specific goals for us. Uh, and I think that the goal that Solomon is communicating, and I think what I want to demonstrate this morning, uh, is that there is a challenge contained here in this text to rethink our notion of investment, of risk-taking, and ultimately of human flourishing. Investment, risk-taking, and ultimately human flourishing. If we spent time together in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen that there's a lot of different things, a lot of different ideas that have popped up time and time again. One of those ideas, the last of those which I communicated just now, is human flourishing. We want to end up this morning seeing how, how Solomon is directing us toward wise living, which results in human flourishing through telling us where and when to invest our resources ourselves and where and when to take risks. Again, human flourishing is an idea that has come up several times in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. When we get to a, chap a chapter like chapter 11, we start to process through some of the things that Solomon's saying. It's not, it's not that, it doesn't look that simple. But I think this is where he's directing us in this text. So I want to be very clear though, before we get into the text and kind of chew on some of the meat here, 
exactly what we mean when we say human flourishing. Again, that idea has come up several times. And so what does it mean to flourish as humans? Human flourishing in this life is an idea that our culture has latched onto pretty hard currently. Our culture is, is heavily latched onto the idea of human flourishing. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to live in such a way as to thrive and to prosper and to grow, to achieve success? Those are some definitions of flourishing that I found. Others would be to state uh, or to be in a state of activity or production. That's flourishing or to reach a height of development or influence, maybe culturally, maybe as a, as a people, as a nation. The reality is that we are designed to flourish as people. God created us for flourishing, you and me. So we ask ourselves, though, the obstacles, what are the obstacles to that, that flourishing? Maybe more directly, we ask ourselves, how do we flourish? How do we find ourselves in a state of thriving, in a state of prospering or achieving success? How do we continue to be productive as, as creatures, as those created in the image of God? And so we ask ourselves the question, and this I think is where Solomon is again directing us, is we ask ourselves the question, what should we do to flourish in the here and now, right here. Sometimes as Christians, we think about the later, we think about the flourishing, all the flourishing that will go on in glory, in eternity. And absolutely, that's very, very real. And yet, this is written to us right now. It's given to us to give us an understanding, a, a depth of understanding about how we can find joy, how we can flourish in our, in our day-to-day. Our culture, again, latched on to this idea very heavily, pushes us to a particular understanding of how to flourish. And here it is. And maybe this is your idea of flourishing. Maybe this is your idea of what it means to be thriving or to be prospering. Our culture pushes us towards self and self-interest and that these are the goals of our life. Self and self-interest are the goals of our lives. We'll put some handles on that in a moment. The idea is that you, the individual, are the highest good. And therefore, you should pursue self and self-interest above everything else. This is a hallmark of secular society. The one we live in currently. Charles Taylor, uh, I quoted him a, a few weeks ago in his book that he writes about our, the secularization of our society called the secular age. He writes, I would like to claim that the coming of modern secularity, in my sense, has been coterminous with the rise of a society in which, for the first time in history, a purely self-sufficient humanism came to be widely available option. I mean by this a humanism accepting no final goals beyond human flourishing, no allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. Of no previous society was this true. Now you've got to sort through a bunch of philosophical jargon there. But what Taylor is highlighting is that our culture is constantly telling us, and then we subsequently believe at some level, at some level, that our personal goals are the most important thing. And we are told that our 
flourishing happens when we get what we want or we get to do the thing that we want to do. And so we should get what we want. And we discard all that won't help us get there. To the place where we want to be and the things that we want to achieve. The thing about this thinking is that it's dramatically theological. It's really theological. It tells us very clearly what we believe about God. There are a lot of men and women writing books telling you that God exists to help you achieve your dreams and your goals. And then they're filing them under the Christian subheading. This is called the gospel of self-fulfillment. It's an actual term. You need to be aware of it, Christian. And there's a lot of it out there. But when Jesus calls men and women to come follow Him, that includes dreams and goals. That maybe means making your five-year plan, your ten-year plan, or your maybe-never-will-happen plan. It means having your kids wear hand-me-downs or shopping at thrift stores. It means hoping for a thing, not getting it, realizing you'll never get it, and still finding joy. Our culture tells us that in order to flourish, we need to make ourself and self-interest our highest good. How can we make self and self-interest our highest good? And so we're told by the world around us that obstacles to flourishing are things like a person, personal failure to reach our potential. Or toxic people who hold us back from reaching our potential and ultimately our dreams. Or failure to love ourselves and believe that we are worthy of happiness. And the world's solution to these problems is to believe in yourself, cut out certain people who don't directly help you work towards your potential and dreams, and to love yourself, and to work towards believing that you can be happy. There's a lot of half-truths in there. So we ask ourselves, what is the biblical definition? What is the biblical definition of human flourishing? How do we flourish as those created in the image of, of God? That's what our text this morning is going to help us with. And we'll answer that question when you come to the end of our time. We'll put a bookmark there. What is the biblical definition? The world says it's about self and self-interest. The Bible says it's about something different. What is that thing? We're going to get there. And the goal that we stated at the beginning this text wants to challenge our notion of investment, of risk-taking, and ultimately of human flourishing. And so, what does that look like? I think there's just one simple way that Solomon does that in this text. One simple way. And the simple way that he does this is by calling us to re re rethink return on investment. Rethinking return on investment. Now, that sounds very financial, but let's unpack it a little bit. When, when we make an investment as people, financial, think about financial investment, we hope for a substantial return. And we know that the prospects of a big return are tied up in how much risk we're willing to take. If you're conservative, 
in a financial investment, the guarantee of return is greater, the guarantee of that return. But if you take a big risk, the reward could be great as well. The preacher makes it clear to us that returns are God's business. Only He knows what the return on investment will ultimately be. And immediately we have a challenge. The preacher gives us this challenge in verse 1. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. Now this isn't some cryptic cliche. It literally means, I think, what it says here. Cast your bread upon the waters. Take your food and throw it in the lake. Take your grub and toss it in a puddle. What, what return on investment is there for the one who casts his bread or her bread on the waters? It doesn't seem like much. It seems like a dumb thing to do. To throw your food away. You remember last week that John reminded us that a proverb isn't a promise. And coming on the tail end of some proverbs, at the end of chapter 10, we may be tempted to think that this is a proverb. It's not a proverb. This is actually something different. This is actually a precept and then a promise. It's an investment principle and a promise that comes to those who know who enact this principle. So what this means is this. If you invest boldly, wisely, and faithfully, if you invest boldly, wisely, and faithfully, you will receive a return on investment that even you cannot fathom. The preacher says at the end of verse 1, you will find it after many days. And then in verse 2, he says, feed, give a portion to, or feed seven or eight, for you not, may not know, or you do, you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. The preacher tells us that we should invest boldly, wisely, and faithfully. That second half of verse 2, we don't know what disaster is coming, and so we should use our resources now. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, so take risks with what you have. Don't hoard it. Be, be radically generous. Be radically generous. It would seem like we're pretty conservative with what God has given us. We tend to be overly cautious because we as people tend to fear ruin. We tend to be less than generous because we're always looking around trying to find or trying to understand if now is the right time to invest. Is now the right time to invest Myself, my time, my energy, my financial resources. Verses 3 and 4 tell us the story of a farmer who is wondering if now is the right time. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not, will not reap. Clouds that are full of rain produce rain. Sometimes trees fall down. 
But verse 4 reminds us, there always can be found an excuse not to act. There can always be found a reason or an excuse not to act. What does that mean? We can find a reason not to do the simplest task. Especially in this case. Not to invest boldly or wisely or faithfully. The farmer says, or the farmer in the preacher's story in verses 3 and 4 doesn't want to sow his seed because of the wind. Why? Because a tree might fall on him. That seems asinine. But that's what prevents him from doing the thing. The simple task that lies before him. Investing himself in the simplest task that his work calls him to. An excuse is made. A tree might fall on my head. Now what makes the farmer a fool isn't that he acknowledges that these things could happen, but these possible scenarios, rain or wind, prevent him from doing anything. We can always find reasons. This is the heart of the text. We can always find reasons not to invest ourselves. We can always find reasons not to invest boldly and wisely and faithfully. We say things like, I can't serve with kids in the local church. I might get sick. Yeah, you might. I can't come to a Bible study. I might look stupid. I don't know anything about the Bible. I can't attend a community group. I might feel uncomfortable. Yeah, you might get sick. You might look stupid. You might feel uncomfortable. And if you go outside to reap, you may get rained on. Or worse, a tree might fall on you. But Solomon's point here is that there's no reason not to do the thing. There's just excuses. There's just excuses. Another thing that Solomon wrote in the Proverbs in chapter 22, verse 13, it communicates a similar idea. He says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. There are lions outside, sure. We don't have lions here, but anything could kill you if you walk outside. Will something like a lion show up and kill you? Maybe. Should you stay in bed because of that possibility? Solomon says no. Rather than be concerned about what could happen and allow that to stop you, You should see what could happen as the motivation to invest boldly, wisely, and faithfully right now. For you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. As you do not know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There's a lot of coulds, but they don't add up to excuses. In verse 6, the preacher says, Do your work, then generously share what you earn in the evening. So during the day, go to work, pour yourself out, and then in the evening, give it away. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Feed seven or eight people. Cast your bread on the waters. Be bold. 
take a risk, radically invest in places where you aren't sure how a return is possible. That's the principle of this text. Radically invest yourself in a place where you're not sure how return is possible. This is going to drive us into conclusion. And in the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, we see a very application-heavy part of this book. The first half was us looking at things and determining, along with Solomon, if they're vanity, wealth, money, material, power, sex, all of these different things, are they vanity? Solomon says, yes, all is in fact vanity. In the second half of the book, you'll remember that we're working then towards, if that's true, if everything under the sun is vain, if everything under the sun is meaningless, how can we as people find meaning? Again, this is one of the practical ways. And when we ask ourselves the question, how can we find meaning? We're really asking ourselves that question that we asked at the outset. How do we flourish as people? How do we flourish as those who are created in the image of God? So go back to that idea. Go back to human flourishing. And this is going to drive us toward a conclusion. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in the application portion of this text. Back to the idea. What does this passage teach us about investment and risk-taking? What does this passage teach us about investment and risk-taking? Two things. The first thing is that we should be challenged to see that investment extends beyond use of resources into all that we are. Let me say that again. Investment extends beyond use of resources into all that we are. So it's both all that we are and all that we have. We think about investment, we think about usually our money, financial first, but then we think about our time and our energy. But the call here is every part of us. All of us. Here's what I mean. When we think about it, when God talks about it, when He talks about investment in Scripture, He tells us that this conversation cannot stop short of all of us. Nothing is withheld. Illustrated in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. You know the story of the rich young man. Let me read what Matthew writes. Verses 16 through 22 in Matthew chapter 19. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, Matthew records this, when the young man heard this, 
He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The investment was too great for the rich young man. Jesus spelled it out for him. The rich young man was okay living a life that kept the law. He was okay with being morally upright. He lived according to these things vigilantly. He says, all of these things I have kept. He says, what's next, Jesus? What what comes after I keep the law vigilantly with all of my heart? What comes next? Jesus says, everything is next. The man was rich. Jesus said, sell all you have and give what you get for it to the poor. Put it all on Bizman. Sell it all. And when the money comes in, give it away. The man was young. He had all of life in front of him. He was going to travel. He was going to see the world. He was going to spend time with people who he enjoyed. Jesus said, come follow me. All of life in front of this young man. All of the prospects. And Jesus says, come follow me. Jesus says something that Solomon does here in chapter 11. He said, cast your bread upon the waters. That which you have, all of you, throw it away. Toss it away. Toss it aside. Come, follow me. This is the call to all of us as well. There is no thing that Jesus doesn't call us to give up to follow Him. There is no thing that Jesus doesn't call us to give up to follow Him. This is where our hearts begin to get frustrated. I hope that that sentence makes you a little bit irritated. There is no thing that Jesus doesn't call you to give up to follow Him. We must abandon everything. Material money, dreams, goals, reputation, status. Investment for Jesus is seeing return as not in the here and now, but in the eternal. He says it, to the rich young man, and you will have treasure in heaven. And he says it. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Do you want to flourish right now, rich young man? Self and self-interest, gone. Come, follow me. The funny thing is that the treasure that Jesus promised the rich young man, if he abandoned everything to follow him, was standing right in front of him. He was standing in physical proximity to heaven's greatest treasure, Jesus Christ Himself. He wasn't talking about financial return, a bigger house. Jesus, heaven's greatest treasure, was right there in front of the rich young man, and he turns around and walks the other way, sorrowful, 
Because he saw that what he had and the prospects that stood in front of him as a young person were better than Jesus Christ. The call to invest means to all of us all that we are and all that we have. The second thing that this passage teaches us is that we should, in fact, take risks. That's tied up in a little bit of what we just said. But if it rains and a tree falls and a lion exists, that shouldn't keep us from acting. I think Christians are unfortunately some of the most risk-adverse people. We make a lot of excuses. Sometimes we withhold ourselves in the name of stewardship. We like to justify our lack of generosity. I need to steward that which God has given me well. Yes, you do. But is risking what you have for the sake of the gospel, the good of others, the building of the church, is that bad stewardship? The answer is no. Investing all that you are, all that you have into following Jesus is exactly the type of risk we are meant to take. Again, let's put some handles on this. Men. Men. I challenge you to radically rethink the way you invest yourself. The call in verse 1 is for you. Cast your bread upon the waters. For some of you men, you spend a lot of time at work. You get paid for that. You get benefits for your family. You gain status. But often that work is an excuse for not spending time in God's Word individually or with others. This is an epidemic. You say, I don't get too much time with my family. I need to relax too, you know. You don't know how much pressure I'm under. Scripture is clear. Cast your bread upon your waters. Invest yourself in the place where it's hard to see the return. Consider the promise that God makes in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Look at this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do any of you experience that type of return on investment in anything that you do? The answer is no. We're frustrated by the way that things happen. Your work week was probably frustrating this week. There was a lot of things that probably went wrong. The yield for your investment, the yield for your work is oftentimes very low. But God, through His Word, tells us that His Word, when it goes out from His mouth, will not return empty. There is not one iota, there is not one drop of God's Word that goes out from His mouth that does not fulfill all of which He intends for it to fulfill. And so we need to invest ourselves there in something that offers 100% guaranteed yield. Oftentimes, men, you use your wife and kids as an, as an excuse. We tend to cowardly stand behind them as a human shield 
Because we find that promise in Isaiah 55 too hard to believe. How could anything yield 100%? You know very well that everything that you've set your mind to and everything that you've put your hand to has not yielded that well. And yet God can and He does and He will. Our work, our family time, our hobbies, our relaxation cannot yield anything close to what the Word of God can in your heart. Instead of standing in the gap for our wives and our kids, caring for their spiritual needs as well as their physical and emotional needs, we sacrifice them on the altar of our risk-adverse faithlessness in the face of a promise like Isaiah 55. Men, cast your bread upon the waters. If you're young, I challenge you to radically rethink the way you invest. If you're in high school or even middle school, your peers are thinking about what's next in life. College, career. Your peers are thinking about your rela- their relationships. They're thinking about how they dress. They're thinking about how they associate or who they associate with. The call here is to cast your bread upon the waters. Invest in places that don't make sense to your peers. The hurting, those who are indifferent. Show them the love of Jesus. School is hard. It's a a hard place with a lot of hard realities. doesn't come later. Seek to understand what life is about. It's not just for adults to think about. It may feel daunting. It's okay. Cast your bread upon the water. Seasoned folks in this room, I challenge you to rethink radically the way that you invest yourself. Cast your bread upon the waters. Find ways to pour into a younger generation that desperately needs the wisdom that you possess. Don't bemoan their lack of wisdom their foolish activity, and then withhold it from them. Invest in the work of the local church. Retirement isn't just a time to finally get to do what you want. What if it was to pour yourself through investing in younger people who need your wisdom in the local church? Take some risks. Now's the time. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not when you have more energy. It'll never happen. Now is the time. Could it all go really wrong? Yes. Is your hope in it going completely right? No. God is in control. He's sovereign over your investments. When it looks like there is nothing that could come from you pouring yourself into a brother or sister in Christ day after day after day after day after day. Remember the call to cast your bread upon the waters. Invest with no expectation of return in this life. You don't need return because Jesus is your treasure. So invest with all that you are. Take risks. This will lead us to where we're going. That concept, that idea of human flourishing. Nearsightedness suggests that the way to flourish in this life is to focus on self and self-interest. 
Eliminate all barriers that get in the way and pursue you. And then you will flourish. Christians realize those who are called to follow Jesus with all that we are and all that we have realize that this simply isn't true. That's not the way to flourish. And so we come to the biblical definition of flourishing. It's investing all that you are in something bigger than yourself. Something beyond yourself. Mainly, glorifying and enjoying God. How do we flourish in this life? Glorify and enjoy God. How do we glorify and enjoy God? We exist for others. We take that which we are and take that which we have and we invest it wisely, faithfully, boldly. Human flourishing, as found in the Bible, looks beyond ourselves. It casts our bread upon the waters, fully trusting that it will come back to us like the promise says in the second half of one. And the way that it comes back to us is in eternity. We get to flourish in the here and now. Realizing that it's not our self-fulfillment, not material gain here on earth, not in our health or our wealth or happiness under the sun, but we get to see Jesus, our treasure, face to face and behold His glory as the Lamb who was slain. Behold that glory forever and ever. So in the meantime, how do we boldly, wisely, faithfully invest all that we are and all that we have? And this will be our final thought, and then we'll come to the table. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to do that. I don't know where to start. I have no idea. I think, consider Mark chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Do you know that story? You know that story. The preacher tells us, in verse 2 of our text, to give a portion to seven or to even eight. It may seem like a big stretch to put seven or eight more people around your dinner table just because of the size of your dinner table or because of the means with which it takes to actually feed seven or eight more people. But consider Jesus who welcomed 5,000 men, not even including women and children. He welcomed 5,000 to eat with him when he only had five loaves and two fish. Taking that which you have, investing it in places where it seems difficult to see a return. This is the place to start boldly, wisely, and faithfully investing all that you have. Having faith that Jesus can restore all that you need when you generously give it all away. The same Jesus that looked at 5,000 men had compassion on them and fed them all with leftovers to spare. This same Jesus will ensure that you are never lacking. You may be tired. You may be out of time. You may be beaten down. You may be ready to give up. Jesus Christ is your source. Jesus called Himself the bread of life. He called Himself the living water. 
And in Him, your cupboards are always full and your well is never dry. You can cast your bread upon the waters because the bread of life is already yours. So we asked that question at the beginning, do we want to flourish in this life? And the answer is yes, we do. We must invest all that we are and all that we have when the risk seems too high and consider that the results are up to God and that the return is not in the here and now, but guaranteed in eternity. So we're going to